Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Bill Schaffner. Bill, it's always wonderful to have you. And always a pleasure to be with you, Marla. As we reflect on many years of public health accomplishments, we're talking with thought leaders, heroes, and champions of disease prevention, while also building momentum for the future. Our guest today, Dr. Tom Frieden, is president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, a global nonprofit organization focused on preventing epidemics and deaths from cardiovascular disease. Throughout his career, he has been a strong advocate for pandemic preparedness, vaccine equity, and improving public health systems. As a global expert in tuberculosis, tobacco control, and health policy and administration, he served as director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, from 2009 to 2017, where he oversaw responses to the H1N1 influenza, Ebola, and Zika epidemics. Prior to leading CDC, he served as commissioner of the New York City Department of Health from 2002 to 2009. Born and raised in New York City, he enjoys playing squash, reading nonfiction, and cooking. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Although many may not know, you studied philosophy as an undergraduate. So how did you then become interested in studying medicine and ultimately in a career in public health? Actually, my father was a doctor, and he had gone to college and medical school during World War II and been accelerated through college and had felt his whole life like he was robbed of an education outside of medicine. So his advice to me was, get a broad education before you go into medicine because you'll be studying medicine the rest of your career. I found philosophy fascinating and looked at the concept of different and even logically inconsistent frames of mind and what are the ethical implications and the cognitive applications of that. That's a fancy way of saying there are different ways of seeing the world and they may have equal validity, but different implications for action. That's absolutely fascinating, Tom. Now, applying different ways of looking at things over time, what are some of the most important changes you've seen related to infectious diseases throughout your career? On the one hand, we've seen the rise of drug-resistant bacteria, but also the ability to control drug-resistant bacteria, whether it's tuberculosis or some of the very drug-resistant strains that we saw in U.S. hospitals. It's not necessarily a one-way street to more and more drug resistance. There is the possibility to reverse it. There is the possibility of really making a difference, and that's encouraging. We've also seen the spread of more and more effective and a wider range of vaccines. Vaccines are one of the greatest accomplishments of all of humanity, and of course, we have challenges with understandable and some not very understandable concerns about vaccine safety and efficacy. And getting to a level where we can have a rational, respectful discussion of that, I think, is really important. I also think sometimes, and this is maybe also related to different perspectives, what goes around comes around. If you look 100, 120 years ago to tuberculosis control, the tuberculosis control advocates didn't just advocate for better treatment and diagnostic services. They advocated for better housing, better ventilation, 
better nutrition so that people would have more resistance to the main causes of infectious diseases. And I think we initially went to a very biomedical model in infectious diseases, and now we're going back to that broader understanding that, yeah, we need good diagnosis, good treatment, but we also need good communication. We need trust in communities. We need to address the felt needs of communities, the concerns of communities. We need to address some of the social structures that are making it difficult for people to access the life-saving services that are or should be available to them. A note that you mentioned antibiotic resistance and tuberculosis. And I recall that while at the New York City Department of Health back in the 1990s, you actually oversaw efforts to control a very large outbreak of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. So what did you learn from that experience, and were you able to apply those lessons to your later work, both in India at the World Health Organization and, of course, at the CDC? You're right, Bill. What happened in New York City was with HIV, homelessness, incarceration, or infection control in hospitals especially, we had explosive spread of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, what would now be called extremely drug-resistant tuberculosis, spreading especially in hospitals and especially among people living with HIV. And we found that infection control was extremely important, rapid diagnosis and rapid treatment. But perhaps most important was systematically tracking the outcome of every single patient. And this we learned from a wonderful epidemiologist named Dr. Carol Stieblow. He had gotten tuberculosis in a relocation camp following World War II and then had spent decades learning how to track and control tuberculosis first in Europe and then in Africa and Tanzania. And Stieblo came to visit New York City. He looked at our report. He pointed out trends that I had missed, which was galling because I had written the report. And then he asked me a question that has changed how I've worked in the 30 years since. He said, Dr. Frieden, this report tells me all about these 3,811 patients that you diagnosed last year in the New York City area, but it doesn't tell me the most important thing. And I was offended. I said, what's that? He said, it didn't tell me how many of them you cured. And I was so ashamed because it was obviously the most important question and we hadn't looked at it. And the next morning, we started a program of prospective cohort review tracking the outcome of every single patient every quarter and holding ourselves accountable to providing the kind of patient-friendly services with the patients as the VIPs of the program that could get virtually all patients. When I moved to India, I was able to work with the World Health Organization, the government of India, and the states of India to implement an analogous program tracking millions of patients. And at CDC and at the New York City Health Department, I've tried to have that basic concept of accountability for outcomes, accountability to patients and the public, putting the patient at the center of the system as the core of uh, how I've tried to work. I think it's so interesting, Tom. As New York Health Commissioner, you took on so many controversial issues from limiting trans fat in New York City restaurants to smoking bans. So I'll ask, what are you most proud of during your time there as Health Commissioner? In New York City, we were able to 
take on the leading causes of death, set up tracking systems, reduce the smoking rate, help hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers quit smoking, ban trans fat, which has now spread to 60 countries all over the world, uh, about half of the world's population, about two-thirds of the prior consumption of trans fat, which is an artificial toxic chemical that was added to our food. But fundamentally, all of that was in the service of extending healthy life expectancy. In the time I was there, life expectancy of New Yorkers increased by about three years, and that was faster than the national increase. We implemented a lot of programs, including programs to improve the treatment of HIV, but fundamentally, we helped to strengthen what was already a great department so that it has the data systems it needs so that when there is political commitment, you can expand effective programs, you can reach more people, you can save more lives. Very impressive. I'm going to transition to something else, Tom, because it's been interesting to hear you and other former CDC directors comment on the lessons of COVID-19, as well as previous pandemics and public health emergencies. So what do you think the biggest barriers are to applying those lessons learned? I think to succeed, we have to have what we call TOP, T-O-P, technical excellence, operational rigor, and political savvy. If you don't have any one of those three components, your programs are not likely to succeed. Now, each of them are hard. To have good technical skills means rapid analysis of data. It means understanding the strengths and weaknesses of different data sources. It means coming up with guidance that's both practical and scientifically defensible. On the operational level, it means knowing that the best technical guidelines in the world aren't going to make a difference if they aren't well implemented, having systems to track that implementation. And politically, it means making sure that we have the political alignment so that we can understand what's plausible, what will fly in any given community, who are the best messengers, and what are the best messages to get things through. I think one of our real challenges in public health is that our successes are much less visible than our failures. And when we're asking people to do things, sometimes it's for a distant benefit or to avoid a distant risk. If a third of the people who smoked died after their first cigarette, very few people would take up smoking. But because death from tobacco happens years or decades after people start smoking, that delay between stimulus and response, between exposure and impact, means that we have a real challenge to help people see what may not be readily apparent, understand that there is the ability to change that future, and then work together to actually change the future. That's the vaccine story also, isn't it? You vaccinate children against measles, and measles disappears, and the subsequent generations of mothers don't understand the need for measles vaccination, right? Absolutely. Basically, public health is a victim of its own success in many ways. 
Absolutely. Tom, you've talked about the influence that your father as a physician had on your career, but I'm particularly interested in who or what inspired you to first investigate and address health disparities, which you've done so well. My first job was as a community organizer for a few months only in the Mississippi Delta area. And I was assigned to a community health center in a black community. It was a brand new health center, beautiful, and they had a low utilization rate and they didn't understand why. It was a mystery. They asked us to come down and help them increase their utilization rate. They were getting a second physician in and even their first physician wasn't terribly busy. So they knew there were big needs. They had a catchment area of 14,000 people and not knowing what to do, being right out of college and not knowing any better, I did a simple random sample of the community, did hundreds of interviews and realized that half of the people living in the catchment area did not know that the community existed. 80% didn't know that they worked on a sliding fee scale and you'd have to pay only a few dollars to get seen. And virtually nobody knew that because the clinic recognized that many people didn't have transport, that they had a shuttle bus that would pick people up and drop them off. And what's more, the people who did know that were the people who were less likely to use the health center what's called the inverse care law. People who need services the most get them the least and vice versa. And that's a fundamental reality. If we want to do the most good, we have to focus on the populations and people who will benefit the most from the services. Another thing that really made me focus on disparities was my work in tuberculosis. Tuberculosis often affects the most disenfranchised groups in society. In New York City, we had a huge outbreak in the 1990s, but there had been an outbreak spreading in Harlem for a decade. And if the society had been as concerned about that outbreak in Harlem a decade earlier, that bigger outbreak wouldn't have happened. So addressing the population's in greatest need not only has the biggest impact, but it's important for everyone and it's important ethically. Tom. CDC directors in trying to implement some of the concepts that you've uh, articulated so well invariably must interact with political leaders of the country. Can you tell us a bit more about how you navigated those challenges during your tenure at CDC? And relatedly, how can we best rebuild trust in CDC and other public health agencies? This is not an easy question. I worked hard when I was uh, running CDC to have a good relationship with everyone from every part of the political spectrum, understanding that we'll have differences of opinion, but there's always going to be common ground. One of the things that's really important is effective communication, being very clear about what we know, when we know it, how we know it, being very clear about our role. Public health has various different roles at the federal, state, and local levels. Uh, at the federal level, CDC doesn't really set policies. CDC provides guidance. And building trust and rebuilding trust is going to be really hard. Trust is built over a lifetime. It's lost in seconds. And there's a long road ahead, as we see with vaccine hesitancy, pandemic fatigue, and budget cuts. It's not going to be easy. 
I think some of the things that we need to do are to be very clear about what went wrong, to acknowledge those, to demonstrate successes, meet people where they are, increase community engagement. All of that is going to be important both with the public and with elected officials. I think we need to get back to the reality of public health is the organized efforts of society to live longer, healthier lives. And there are value choices. There are political choices, and those are best made by communities, by politicians. But what public health can do is be very clear about what will happen as a result of different choices being made, whether it's mandates for vaccines or laws to protect children from predatory marketing by tobacco, alcohol, or junk food companies, or taxation of harmful substances, or programs to improve the kind of healthcare that people receive so they can get healthcare that they can access and trust and really does protect and improve their health. I think that's a perfect segue to hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing now at Resolve to Save Lives and specifically what you're doing to demonstrate that value of investing in public health, which we know is so important. I'm also really intrigued by the uh, line that we can learn from the epidemics that didn't happen. Thank you. At Resolve to Save Lives, we have two broad areas of work. One of them is cardiovascular health, where we think that partnering with countries, the world can prevent 100 million deaths over a 30-year period by implementing three things well. Eliminating artificial trans fat from the world, as 60 countries have already done, covering about half of the world's population, two-thirds of the world's prior consumption, a measure that will save millions of lives. Second, reducing sodium consumption and increasing consumption of low-sodium salts that contain potassium. High sodium is the leading dietary risk factor for death, and it's not natural. It's not how we were meant to be living. It's been added to our food in large quantities. It can be removed, not easy, and it's not about what you're adding at the table. That's not the problem. The problem is what comes in your breakfast cereal that you didn't know was there. Not many people would take a salt shaker over their cereal, but that's what's been done before it gets to your bowl. So reducing sodium is very important and improving the treatment of high blood pressure. We just worked with the World Health Organization to release the first ever global report on hypertension. This is the world's leading cause of death, kills more people than all infectious diseases combined. And good control measures would prevent 76 million deaths, 120 million strokes, and 79 million heart attacks over the next 25 years. We've worked with more than 30 countries to scale up programs to treat hypertension well, learning really from some of the tuberculosis work that we did before tracking the outcomes of every patient. The second broad area of work for Resolve to Save Lives is partnering with countries to improve epidemic prevention. And here, in addition to the epidemics that didn't happen, work that we have done each year, recognizing the heroes on the front lines that often don't get recognized, is advancing a way of measuring how well each area is doing called 717. For every single outbreak, was the outbreak identified within seven days of emergence reported to public health within one day, 
and all essential control measures in place within seven days. The World Health Organization has published the 717 target as a key part of their early action review process. The World Bank, USAID, Pandemic Fund, the Global Fund have all used this metric. But most importantly, countries in Africa, Asia, the Middle East are using it increasingly as a way of rapid quality improvement. Instead of an endless planning process, a find a problem, fix a problem process to quickly resolve things that can be quickly resolved and prioritize for attention those that are going to take longer. I think coming out of COVID, we need to get the three R's right. We need a renaissance in public health so that public health really is able to meet the need of the moment to align our societies to rebuild trust. We need robust primary healthcare systems because it's at the primary healthcare level that diseases will get recognized and outbreaks will be stopped and vaccinations will be given. And we need resilient communities so that when there is the next health shock, and there really will be a next health shock, without a doubt, communities are more resilient. Individuals and families are more resilient. They're less likely to have had a heart attack or a stroke or have out-of-control diabetes. And that resilience includes that they have a trusting relationship with a healthcare provider who they can go to if they feel sick. And we hope the healthcare system and the public health department are working together so that resilience really infuses the community. Tom, you've mentioned many important things. I'm almost hesitant to ask what most keeps you awake at night these days. I worry about the fact that our most deadly diseases are often our most invisible ones, whether that's hypertension, known as the silent killer, and of all of the money going into global health, less than a half of a percent goes to address cardiovascular health, and that's the world's leading cause of death. So that's a real challenge. How do we, without taking away precious resources from the programs that are saving lives and other programs, how do we address what's causing the most suffering and death in the world now? The same is true for the risk of the next pandemic. How do we set up those systems for early warning, early recognition, early response, so that before we have a crisis and when we have this invisible crisis of cardiovascular death, we can take effective action to protect people so that if people just go about their business, they can live a long, healthy, productive life. So following on to that, I think it's been difficult for many of us, particularly during the pandemic, to find that healthy balance between work and home lives. So Tom, I'll ask, what do you like to do for fun or to relieve stress? I love going to the gym. And for an hour or two, I don't think about anything but hitting a ball or getting exercise. And that's great. I also meditate twice a day, every day. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy reading, learning about the world through books. For me, is a lot of fun. And of course, connecting with family and friends. Sounds like a good recipe. <laughs> Tom, before we sign off, first, let me thank you so much again for joining us and sharing your perspectives. I'd also like to give you that same opportunity that we give to all of our guests, and that is, what is the myth that you would most like to bust? There are three myths that really have me concerned because I've seen these spreading in society, in the U.S. especially. The first is 
that COVID didn't really kill a million Americans. And it's very clear. There were more than a million and a half more deaths in the three years of the pandemic peak than there were in the three prior years where they will be in the next three years. COVID killed. And it's a terrible experience. We'd all like to put it behind us, but let's not deny reality. The second myth I hear is, oh, the vaccines aren't proven to save lives. COVID vaccines aren't perfect, but they're remarkably effective at reducing the risk of severe illness, hospitalization, and death, especially for those who are over 65 or have underlying health conditions. And the third myth is whether or not masks work. Nothing is going to work perfectly, but it's quite clear that when people wear masks, they're less likely to spread or get infected by different germs. And the tighter the mask fits, the higher quality mask, the more effective that will be. I think these three myths are really important to address because unless we come to better terms with this as a society, we're going to be less well prepared for the next health threat that we face. We've been talking today with Dr. Tom Frieden, former CDC director and now CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, a global leader in preventive medicine and public health. Thanks again for joining us, Tom. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas, a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about NFID, be sure to visit us online at nfid.org. Until next time.